Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Well, I hope you have enjoyed listening to The Sisters here on Undertow. Frankie's life was forever changed by that mysterious gift that came to the Mutter Museum and the things she could not help look into after it came in. Were you seduced by this tale of interwoven past and present and the obsession that can lead to destruction? Then stick around to hear an extended interview with series creator and writer Brett Nietzsche as we go deep into the haunted origins of the story and talk about what really scares us and why audio is the perfect medium for telling spooky stories just after this. Hey, this is Fred Greenhalgh, your host of Undertow, Realm's podcast delving into the weird and the wicked. Hopefully by now you've heard all that The Sisters has to offer, and if not, well, rewind in this season podcast feed and go on this thrilling ride because I cannot guarantee this is going to be a spoiler-free chat. We're jumping in now with Brett talking The Sisters. Hey, and we're welcoming back Brett Nietzsche, the creator and one of the writers on The Sisters, our terrifying podcast here on Undertow. Brett, let's kick it off with this one. Why is audio such a wonderful medium when you're telling a scary story? All horror in general is a seduction, right? Like stories are only scary if you ease someone into it and there's a sense of intimacy and you're lulling them into the dark. And in my opinion, what audio fiction, scripted podcasts, whatever the name is we're using for this medium, what it does better than movies, what it does better than books, what it does better than theater, is I think that if you write a really great fiction podcast, there's a sense of intimacy with the listener. There's a kind of seduction that can happen because they can listen to this wherever they are in the dark. They put their earbuds in. It's so personal. And so I think that horror and things that are scary are intrinsic fits for the medium. And this always inherently seemed like an interesting story to tell in audio because it was rich with history and science. And I I find that people love listening to that sort of stuff unspooling. In terms of the dual timelines, telling a story that takes place in the 1950s and also the the current modern-day story in Philadelphia, I think that it works quite well. There's a lot of stories that are told with dual timelines, The Hours, The Red Violin. There's some classic examples in cinema that do it really well. I thought what was unique about this story is the past storyline is actually the substance of the present-day investigation. Cool, yeah. No, I I think 
yeah, this is this does something very unique where it and it has this sort of like analog feel uh, of 1960s England where and it has sort of this like clean and sharp and and modern feel for the modern day that aesthetically I think you as an audience member you'll just learn the the grammar as it were of the show pretty quickly it's like this kind of storytelling that requires the audience to kind of invest on you know knowing it's going somewhere but you're feeling like there there's a there's there's that yeah, like where? How do these things that may not seem interconnected at first connect later, and they they do so in a really satisfying way? And I I, I just love that sort of stuff because it does it asks something of you, but then by you investing in it, it the reward is is greater than if the storytelling was like just more you know completely straightforward. Yeah, I mean, I I think so. There, there's this whole debate within the people who care about audio fiction. It's still a, a fairly niche area, but. Do you present a show very simply that's very easy to follow, that people can kind of do their laundry as they're listening to it? Or do you want to try for something that requires a more intense listening experience and intense engagement? I can see arguments for both sides, but the first show that I wrote was called The Cipher from BBC Sounds, and that was incredibly ambitious. It was a globe-trotting young adult sci-fi adventure, and the whole time I was writing it, I just I assumed I would never get a chance to to write, you know, another audio show again. So I kind of didn't save anything for the swim back. I just threw everything at the wall, and somehow it seemed like people really enjoyed that. They enjoyed kind of the the wildness of it and following the different threads and seeing how they link together. In my own experience, people really enjoy piecing things together and listening and re-listening and trying to, you know, connect the threads for themselves. If pressed, I would always say go for something that that is challenging, even though there can be, you know, great shows that are made with a very simple linear story. Let's cut into some of the meat of, of just on the storytelling level. So one of the themes that we see in Sisters is these instances of history repeating itself and also tragedy you know, occurring and enduring across generations. Do you want to talk about those themes and, you know, kind of did they come organically or are they something you connected as a writer or kind of, yeah, how, how do you feel about some of those themes about loss and history? It's a good question because it's something that I have been thinking about all horror stories are essentially history stories, right? In Poltergeist, they're living in a house that was built on top of a cemetery where the headstones were moved, but the bodies were were kept underground. In A Nightmare on Elm Street, a group of parents kill this child killer, Freddy Krueger. And what happens? Freddy then comes back to haunt the dreams of the children of those parents who killed him. So every horror story... Get Out, for example, it's dealing with the history of race in America, right? So all horror is about the past haunting the present to some degree, even when you're going with like a schlocky B-horror film, uh, uh, Friday the 13th. Why are these kids being killed at the summer camp? Because 40 years ago, a little boy drowned when the counselors weren't watching him, right? So there's this inextricable bind between history and horror And so The Sisters seemed like a really cool story that fit into that box. And it's not even so much that history is repeating itself, but that history is being lived out in the present. It's haunting the present. And in the case of both narrators in the two timelines, Frankie, who is the the narrator of the present timeline, and Francis, who's the narrator 
of the past timeline, both of their lives sort of intersect in very surprising, interesting ways. And I hope that as people listen to the show, they can, the, the timelines almost melt away and it becomes one propulsive narrative that's moving forward and history and the present are completely tied. Well, that's a great segue to this next question, which was to really dig deeper onto our two point of view characters, Frankie and Francis, uh, very different people, very different situations. Uh, they both find themselves facing impossible things and in different ways. Do you want to talk, uh, yeah, you talk about each of them and, and kind of their point of view in the world? Yeah, so Frankie, who I think I relate to the most, she's a millennial who's the curator of this Museum of Oddities. Deep down, she knows that it's a, it's, a, it's a good job, but she saw herself somewhere else. She wants to be the curator of the Philadelphia Art Museum. And I think that's something that everyone can relate to. She's sort of not completely satisfied with the circumstances of her life, even though she has um, friends and a job and, you know, things to be grateful for. She's, she is going through a divorce. She's having some personal struggles with alcohol. She's someone who I think that everyone can relate to. But she has a hole in her heart from something that happened in her past. And I don't want to give away exactly what that is, but it deals with her family history. And this thing that happened to her, this, this mystery in her past, is something that she cannot stop scratching at, like a scab. She just cannot stop thinking about it. She can't let it go. There's a scene where her ex-husband talks about how she would stay up late at night and tell stories about this person, this event from her past. And she can't let go of her own history, and she keeps digging, digging, digging. And that's ultimately what leads her into this nightmare that she finds herself in. And with Francis in the past storyline... I'm not so sure that Frankie and Francis are very similar, but Frankie is very similar to Thomas, who is the husband of Francis. Thomas Pollard in the script is a, is a man who has a good life. He has a wife, and he has two kids, and he has a job at the factory, and he's doing well. But he really wants to ensure that his family will be set for life. He always wants more. He's, he's digging, right? And so because he's digging and digging and digging the same way that Frankie is digging and scratching and scratching, he finds himself in an unimaginable situation. And it's really quite interesting, right? Because I think that that's, again, something that everyone can relate to. To your, to your point about themes of history, largely the show is about the, the skeletons, literally and metaphorically, that you can dig up if you are not grateful for what's right in front of you, but instead are searching for something more, you might unearth some things that are unintended and harmful. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And I loved, because I hadn't necessarily made that connection between Frankie and Thomas, but yes, there, it's, I guess, again, without trying to spoil anything for the show, the kind of forward action of this uh, uh, horror story is driven by just needing to know and and not knowing when to stop per se or, or, or but I, I don't even know if that's the case because like should the, should either of them have stopped and been content but I guess I'm curious about that because that is a that is a really interesting choice of sort of like the propulsive engine and so is there something about like obsession that you're personally interested in or that kind of came to be interesting to you as you worked on this Oh, I mean, yes, I'm I'm an obsessed person in general. But uh, yeah, no, I just, as I've gotten 
older in my own life, I've just noticed with people around me, people that I love, people that I know in passing, people that you overhear their conversations on the street. When people are determined to fix things or to attain more or to deconstruct their life, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. It's, it's great to have ambition. We all do. But it's good to be mindful of what you have and to be grateful for that because if you continue to press and to tear apart, you'll wind up opening up literally and metaphorically kind of new worlds and new problems and new portals. And you just have to do it uh, carefully. You have to be careful about balancing your ambition and your desire to know the truth with also just the reality of living in the present day to day. And I think that that's something that when you listen to the show, you can immediately identify that Frankie struggles with. But interestingly enough, though, that was my way into her character. I remember when I was writing the first draft of the pilot, I said, okay, well, here's this woman who's the curator of this, you know, interesting medical museum in Philadelphia. Why would she get a job there? And I, I started thinking of her as like, well, okay, maybe she has some type of issue with her body that has made her fascinated by medical abnormalities. And this is a mission of hers to uh, work at a place that showcases the imperfections of the human body. I was trying to tie Frankie to the museum. Um, and it wasn't satisfying to write. I wasn't really having fun. And I'm someone who, when I write, I need to follow the fun. If I'm not having a great time, if I'm not completely lit up when I'm writing it, I just assume that people are going to be, you know, exhausted listening to it. So what ultimately allowed me into Frankie's POV was one night I kind of woke up in the middle of the night and I just said to myself, oh, Frankie hates the mutter, right? Like she doesn't want to be working here. This wasn't her dream. She wanted something else and she kind of ended up here. And that all of a sudden she became so much more interesting to me. Um, maybe because that's more relatable because I think that everybody who, you know, has a job that they like, that, you know, most of us think like, okay, I, I love this situation, but I wish it was one click to the right or to the left. And as soon as I, as soon as I kind of had that beat for her character, she doesn't like this museum, all of a sudden I fell in love with her and her, her circumstance. And a lot of things kind of naturally emanated from that one character beat. Amazing. Well, and I should say, you know, the performance of Frankie is absolutely stellar. We have Mae Whitman in that role. We have Helen Baxendale, Emily from Friends, playing Francis, David Morrissey, a.k.a. the governor from Walking Dead as the mysterious Mark Whitney. What was it like to hear these characters come to life in the performances? I mean, that's always the most fun part. When really talented actors like May and the rest of the cast start working with the material, it's really a joy. Like, once I started having work of mine produced, I kind of stopped thinking, my, thinking of myself as a solitary writer, and I kind of and my own brain switched my job description to I'm a party planner. You know, like I'm writing this script for this really fun party that we're going to have and people are going to get to bring it to life. And that's kind of how I think of every project now when I sit down to write it is that this is just uh, a launch pad for people to have fun. And it's, it's also just like um, incredibly rewarding when actors who haven't done audio fiction get in the booth and start, they all have a great time. I've had this, this is, this situation has happened over and over where John and I will speak to an actor that we want for a project and they've never done 
audio before, and John will always say, you're going to have a blast. I promise you're going to have fun. And it, it's happened every time. Every project that we've done, the actors all say, I want to do another one of these. This was so much fun because there's a lot of flexibility and there's just a lot of joy in doing an audio show because you don't have the pressure of the cameras and the lights and there's a lot of creative freedom that I think a lot of actors experience. And, you know, for me, just to sit back and watch is obviously thrilling. And May in particular, I thought brought Frankie to life in a way that it was better than I could have imagined. I love I love that writer as party planner. I'm curious, did any of the performers bring characters in directions that you you found unexpected? You 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 you'd written a scene a certain way and then and then another it went when it came alive it kind of went in a dimension you hadn't that surprised you or, or did something interesting for you? Well, David Morrissey and the role of Mark Whitney, who is kind of like the, the, the big bad, the antagonist in many ways of the show, when you're writing a villain or someone that's sinister, you kind of always have this, I don't know, it's just because of years and years of, of consuming media, you have this idea in your head of the villain is going to be scary, Right, uh, with very uh, with a, with a deep booming voice and exaggerated uh, mannerisms, and he played Mark in a very subtle way, which was way more terrifying than than I had imagined. It's it's kind of like I was just watching the other day randomly the the It miniseries from mm. I think it was made in the eighties or the nineties. Do you know this one? Um, yeah, yeah, that's the 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 version of it I grew up on. <laughs> right, right. Both of us, me and you both. So what was interesting uh, about watching it is is I had seen the reboot like we all did a few years ago. And I'm forgetting the name of who played Pennywise. One of the Skarsgard brothers, the very handsome, angelic looking guy he played Pennywise the clown and in the and in the reboot that just came out a few years ago the clown looked terrifying right like he was a scary scary looking clown um when you watch the miniseries from the 90s that in that version of it the clown is not intimidating he looks like a clown that would be at a carnival or at a fast food restaurant and i actually found that not only scarier but more credible because I was thinking, you know, what little boy would walk up to a clown in a sewer that, that looks so terrifying, like in the reboot? But in the in the miniseries from the 90s, like, I totally buy into the fact that if the little boy saw this innocent-looking clown stuck in the, uh, in the sewer drain, that he would go and try to help him. And there is something, you know, that whole Hannah Arendt idea of the banality of evil. There's something really terrifying in people who are subtle and manipulative and sinister. And I think that he brought that to Mark Whitney in a way that was really exciting and interesting. And it comes across really well. No, that's, that's really, uh, really insightful because I, yeah, I agree. It's, it's, you, you know, just, I think this is a great segue because I wanted to get into like, just sort of talking about the craft of horror and, and why us as, as humans are so obsessed with the, the macabre. And uh, yeah, it's one thing to think about big scary villains and and all that but w when it's sort of like you know people in your neighborhood may not be who they seem or people who are close to you may not have the intentions that you think they have like that that's the kind of stuff that is that is is scary and and i think what's interesting with audio horror is you're kind of using that property the medium against the listener <laughs> in a certain way of like we know that you're going to take this personally so we can like make you feel vulnerable in a way that you might 
you know, if you're watching a, a horror movie, you can just sort of close your eyes. And so I guess I'm curious if there's any sort of specific juicy moments or, or things as a writer you were thinking about how to like really lean into the medium or even uniquely fit the audio format. Quite a few scenes where Frankie, this museum curator in Philly, is being sent these clues, these packages that deal with this past storyline. And one of the things that she receives are these old reel-to-reel analog tape recordings from back in the 1950s. And we always knew that these recordings would be a really cool part of the show. And I, I just love listening to them within the show. Um, there's so many different kinds of recordings. The, and we, we use them to, to push the narrative, but they're also dropped in unique places, almost as just emotional cues that we, that we keep on hearing. And I think that that's just super neat because, again, because we're dealing with a story that's inspired by real events, having these recordings, many of which hew very closely to the real stories that inspired them, there's a sense of reality that infects, like, the fictional landscape. And I think that that makes it very neat. Amazing. So another thing I want to get your take on is... So a, a large part of the horror, as it were, comes from reincarnation in this story. Or you go back to our uh, previous talk at the top of the season, we were talking about how the idea for the sisters stemmed from, you know, true world scariest stories being a story of reincarnation, which I guess I find kind of fascinating because reincarnation would seem to suggest that there is life after death, that this, you know, our time here on the spinning ball of dirt is is not finite and and, and death is what scares us. That's what horror movies are about. So so what, if reincarnation offers some sort of hope, what, what is scary about it, do you think? I can speak to my own experience. I don't know if it's going to touch on something more universal, but um, I think, all, look, I, as someone who can acknowledge that he has an ego and is always aware of it, I think that we like to think of ourselves, people probably like to think of themselves as very special and as unique and as having an identity that's consistent. Because when you when you really break it down, like if, you, if you're in the dark and you're asking the question, who am I? If you really kind of push far enough, you ultimately land in this place where you're essentially just a, a collection of memories. That's who you are. You are your experiences and you are the things that you have thought, the things that you have done. And so ego plays a big part in that. It's the ego houses your entire life experience. And so I think that people are very fixated with this, with this idea that there is a constant self, which was which is eternal. It was there before we were born. It's going to be there after we die. And when you get into reincarnation, even though, like you said, it, it's kind of fun to think about coming back as an eagle or a or an interesting wild animal, it does kind of, it kind of steps on the idea that we are this unchanging ego. It kind of makes us dissolve into this, just the soup of humanity and living organisms that we could come back in a variety of ways. There really is no permanent self. That can be liberating from a Buddhist perspective, right? But it's also really scary because I think that... Uh, Everybody loves their life and loves the moments that they cherish with other people, with family. And no one wants to think that that is just going to dissolve and go away. And even though reincarnation is super fun to think about, it kind of it could be depressing or scary to people to think about that. And this in the sisters, it's it's kind of interesting because the the two new set of twins that are born, they retain some of the memories of their deceased siblings which is, you know, at the same, it, it's, 
it's beautiful, I guess you could say in a way, but it's also incredibly, incredibly horrifying. And it raises a lot of interesting perennial philosophical questions about who we are and what is our purpose and do we have an, uh, an eternal soul. And there's almost sort of this monkey paw-esque quality to you'll care for what you wish for, which I guess is, is also true, you know, going back to our, our talk about obsession. You, 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 you keep asking questions, but you might get answers to the questions that are not what you wanted. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, I'm curious whether, you know, the consequences of, of search, if, if that's also part of what makes it scary to you. In life, people are searching for answers to questions. They're trying to get from point A to point B, and we kind of live with this consistent banner that we're carrying that says when we get to point B or point C, we will feel relief or happiness. When we find the answer to question A or B, we'll find relief or find happiness. But, you know, I think that we all find in life one of the things that's scary is when we get to that thing that we want, when we find the answer to the question or arrive at the place that we wanted to get to, we kind of automatically reframe and we have a new goal or a new question. And so we never quite arrive at that thing we thought would give us satisfaction. And that in itself is terrifying. It's, you know, that's kind of a dramatic way to put it. It's like you could say that it's, uh, you know, just a fact of life. <laughs> but but it's scary. It's scary to think that all of the, the things that we want, the things that we want answers to that are going to give us relief or give us a sense of accomplishment or peace once we get there, we often just immediately have a new question or a new destination. And trying to manage our expectations is a really difficult psychological journey that we all go on. And it's scary. It's scary to think that no matter which way you turn in life and what your ambitions are, we all kind of hope that, you know, when we when we get X, we're going to feel whole. And that's rarely the case. Usually it can feel kind of empty to get the answers to what you want because they're inherently unsatisfying because you wanted everything to be, you know, it's kind of like when you're watching a TV, what, when people have a TV series that they love, where, what's the point where everyone's inevitably disappointed, right? The end. I can't even think of a, of a classic show that there's not a contingency of people who are horrified by, by how it ended. Lost is my favorite TV show of all time. Uh, I happen to think that the ending was really cool, but I know that there's many people who think that the ending like undoes the entirety of the show. Uh, Seinfeld famously had an ending that people weren't satisfied with. So endings are kind of always unsatisfying, right? Because we have such huge expectations that when we get to the end, it's all going to make sense, and it never does, right? So... I think that um, that that plays into the show as well. This whole idea of finding the answers to questions that we uh, that we thought would give us peace, but then just bring new problems. And we are talking with Brett Nietzsche here on Undertow. We'll be right back after this. Hi there. If you're a fan of Undertow, I know you love immersive entertainment. And let's be real, as much as we all love podcasts, nothing is quite the same as going out to see a movie in the theater, the experience of being with friends, getting your popcorn, and the sheer impact of the visual and sound experience exactly as the filmmakers intended. If you crave that experience, then Regal Unlimited just makes sense. Regal Unlimited is the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. See any 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And when you want to watch a movie in a premium format like 4DX, IMAX, RPX, or ScreenX, your Regal Unlimited membership gets you into those premium experiences at reduced cost. And you'll save not just on tickets, you save on snacks with 10% off all non-alcoholic concession items. 
So if you're planning to see just two movies this month, you need to join Regal Unlimited. Sign up now in the Regal app or on rigmovies.com. That's R-E-G movies.com slash unlimited. Rigmovies.com slash unlimited. Sign up for Regal Unlimited using code UNDERTOW24 and earn 10% off a three-month subscription. Regal Unlimited, the all-you-can-watch movie subscription, pays yourself in just two visits. Sign up now, code UNDERTOW24. Do you ever wonder who's looking over your shoulder when you're exploring the web? Do you want to keep tracking cookies, curious websites, and your internet service provider from sniffing out too much about your browsing activity? What about gaining the ability to virtually travel to different parts of the world and reshape your internet experience? Well, enter NordVPN. NordVPN protects your internet privacy and lets you go borderless. You can experience sporting events and entertainment that aren't available in your region. When you're on the go, NordVPN protects your data while accessing public Wi-Fi, and in tandem with the Nord Threat Protection Service, protects you from malicious downloads, viruses, and phishing sites. Best of all, this protection is laser-fast, so avoid buffering and lagging while streaming or gaming, and stop your ISP from bandwidth throttling. If you've never used a VPN before, you may be surprised how much your internet experience is shaped by what country of origin you're believed to be from. I've actually had quite a bit of fun using NordVPN as a learning tool with my kids. We change around our virtual location, go to different countries, revisit familiar websites from a new country of origin, and see how things are different. For the cost of a cup of coffee a month, your NordVPN account can be used on up to six devices. So why wait? Get the best discount off your NordVPN plan by going to nordvpn.com undertow. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. And there's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. That's nordvpn.com undertow. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. I also loved how you touched on on memory. I love this this you know, you are your memories. And I, I wrote a question mark with it because it's an interesting thing to probe into. Because again, that is, especially with a story that spans time, I think this this show also probes like, can you trust memories? Because there's like questions about Frankie and does what she remembers when she was young, is that true? And there is this information that's on these tapes, but are they are they real? Have they been tampered with? So I think 
it's a really interesting sort of philosophical question, but the philosophical question has a horror bite to it because if existence is memory, but memory can be tampered with, then, then what does that mean? Obviously, I think that now, more than at any other time in history, we can all agree that memories are not trustworthy. Like for an interesting example, right, within the narrative of the sisters, they're Again, not to give away too much, but one of the things that plays a role in the story is this very real uh, apocryphal text called the Gospel of Thomas, which is a non-canonical gospel that was not made part of the New Testament, but nonetheless was real and was written around the time of Jesus and was discovered, I believe, like in 1945. So it's a, it's a gospel that purports to tell the story of the life of Christ, but it wasn't included in the Bible. And even for people who are religious and know the Bible, there are four Gospels, four essential biographies of Jesus that are included in the Bible, and they all contain different information. And, you know, I remember studying religion in uh, college, and everyone was always debating, you know, what can we really know about the life of Christ or the life of Buddha or the life of any historical religious figure? And people take these—they still take these debates very seriously. There's great academics who've devoted their whole lives to trying to figure out what can we really know about the life of Alexander the Great or Napoleon or Jesus. And we all think that certainly we can arrive at some truth, right? But now in the age where everyone has a cell phone in their pocket and and there's a, a thousand pieces of media content coming out, we still can't agree on what happened like a few years ago at the Capitol, for instance, right? Like everyone has a different story about what happened. How could we ever think that we know something about something that happened 2,000 years ago in the past, right? And when you really meditate on this stuff, it does become kind of scary. I think we've all had the experience, right, of having an argument with your spouse or your sibling or your parent, and you're arguing about something that happened six months ago or a year ago. And you you find yourself bending your brain because they remember the experience completely different from you. And you almost, like I know that I've had this, I almost become convinced that no, they have to be, they're, they're clearly lying to try to, to try to gaslight me in this situation. But I've actually come to believe that it's just people do really do remember things different because it's not so much what actually happened that they're remembering, it's how they felt. And how they felt colors their subconscious so strongly that they are actually remembering the event occurring in that way. It's the reason that therapists are always going to be, you know, in business. It's the reason that there's always fights at holidays because people just, they're having their, like everyone is walking around with like a TV on their head and they're they're plugged into the, their own story, their own life. And, and people are just never going to agree on what happened and what the facts were. And I think that we can definitively say that now because we're living in an era where everything is recorded and analyzed and still we can't agree on almost anything as a family or as a country or as a species collectively. And that's what's terrifying. And going back to every horror story is a history story, I I love it. I'd love to talk about, you had mentioned it earlier, uh, just talking about horror generally, you know, books, movies, TV shows, podcasts. Uh, what are some of your favorites and, and, and I dare say, are there any that like, kind of, you feel like there's some, some DNA that you might've sliced into the sisters? Well, I mean, this is going to be a really cliche answer, but it comes to mind because I, I only saw it for the first time really a year ago as I, I finally last Halloween watched The Exorcist. I had somehow gone my whole adult life without ever seeing it. And the thing that really blew me away 
about watching the original Exorcist, I think it was 1974. That is a slow burn movie, you know? And what's so incredible about it is it works as a drama, even if you didn't have the horror. It's so interesting. It's working on so many layers, but the performances and and the the subtlety of the acting and the and the filmmaking is it was kind of shocking to watch it, right? Because we've become so accustomed. I think we alluded to this earlier. Horror films now are largely about going into a theater and having your senses kind of shocked, right? Like jump scare, jump scare. I mean, it's a cliche. You, you go to a movie now and you watch the trailers for the new uh, Conjuring universe and you know when all the jump scares are coming and they're going to pump up the volume here and they're going to go to a scream here. You're scared because you're physically jolted, right? Whereas a lot of the horror of the 70s, because I started after loving The Exorcist, I kind of did a deep dive into some other films from that decade. And it's incredible how these movies are kind of like, to my point earlier about horror being a seduction, they kind of lull you into the story. And when you establish a world that's very credible and you kind of build the the ladder one step at a time, you can walk people into this, the more supernatural occurrences because they've gotten accustomed and they've gotten, they've bought into a very credible world. And so when the scares start coming, they buy into it too. And I think that's what we tried to to do with the sisters, present stories and characters that feel very real and very credible and work as dramas. And then slowly, slowly, we start turning up the heat on some of the the shocks and scares. And there's really nothing in the entire series, there's really nothing that happens that that I would say is quote unquote supernatural until we're until we're way down the line and people are already invested in uh, these people in that world. To the point about what works well, and we talked about horror and audio earlier. Something that's interesting is the, um, I don't, I don't want to say most, but many of the most memorable soundtracks and jingles and sound effects in the history of cinema are from horror, right? Um, of course, like Jaws, right? Like people hear that music from Jaws. Everyone on planet Earth knows where it's from. In Halloween, the Halloween, in fact, like, I remember hearing a story that John Carpenter, when he had his first cut of the original Halloween, it did not have the music yet. And he showed it to his investors and they said, what the hell are we watching? (laughs) You know, it's a girl walking around a neighborhood and a guy in a mask kind of looking at her. He's like, trust me, when the music comes in, it's going to change everything. And he, he went off and he composed that iconic song. And he put the sound in. And when the same investors watched the movie, they said, this is the scariest thing we've ever seen, right? And with Friday the 13th, there's that whole sound effect that they do every time uh, Jason's mother is coming around the corner. So there is this tradition in horror films of the sound being particularly important and a key part of the narrative, which, again, I think lends... uh, audio is, 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 is a great medium for horror. There's a fantastic... YouTuber named Rob Ager. I believe his channel is called Collative Learning, and he's a he's a film uh, analyst and just really really entertaining guy. And he 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 talks about horror quite a bit, analyzing horror movies. Brilliant, brilliant channel. You should check out. And um, he did a list of his top, I think it was his top twenty five or fifty horror movies of all time. I was just listening to this a few weeks ago, and. His number two and his second favorite horror movie of all time was Alien. 
and his number one horror movie of all time was the Th- the thing, John Carpenter's The Thing. Now both of those movies are, you know, they're they're horror. They're, they could, I guess, you could also say they're sci-fi adjacent. But what was interesting is when I was listening to his analysis of why those two movies, Alien and The Thing, are so scary, is he he said something interesting. He said you could watch those movies without the 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 screen. You could just listen to them. And the breathing of the characters, the terror that the people are feeling is more real than in any other horror films that he had ever seen. I thought that was so interesting that he zeroed in on the sound. And, of course, we have uh, The Quiet Quiet Place that was really, you know, a huge hit recently. So, yeah, there's something interesting going on with how sound seems to be such a natural home for horror. Do you have a a guess on why that's so? I, I think that music and sound goes directly to your heart in a way when you see something well i suppose if you see something very beautiful it, it affects you in a lot of ways too but there there is something about sound that just it's a jolt to the senses and it's very emotional you know music is universal right like you can listen to music from any part of the world and you can know nothing about that culture you don't even have to understand what people are saying the music can be in a different language but it could still have like a profound impact on you there's that i, I believe they're an icelandic band Sigur Ross. And they, they, their lyrics are all um, like a mix of gibberish. Like they're not even singing in a real language. They're kind of making up their own language. But the music is so emotionally affecting, depending what mood you're in. If you're, if you're feeling depressed, their music might make you cry. If you're feeling happy, you're going to feel like uplifted. But there is something about sound that is very visceral. And I think that that's, I don't know if that's the, I don't know if that's the, the reason why, but that would be my guess. It skips the like optic nerve, whatever the optic nerve is doing. So this might be, you know, kind of a funny question because we're sitting here talking about horror movies. But why, why do we do this to ourselves, Brett? Like, what, what, uh, you know, sort of deep thing, whether therapeutic or traumatic, do does horror content, these kinds of stories, bring to us? Why are they so popular with people? Do you think? Part of it is that it's it's a simulation, right? Like, like I think that being afraid is, is fun. It gives you, like, a jolt of adrenaline. And I think that when you ex- experience it through a movie, it allows a safe environment to experience it through. I also think there's—this uh, is just my own working theory, but I, I feel that part of the reason that we like to watch scary movies or true crime is because it gives us a feeling of relief— that, okay, no matter what I'm facing in my life, at least I'm not in that circumstance, you know, being chased by someone in the woods. Yeah, you know, you, you've, you've sort of alluded to, like, one of my pet theories is, like, the thing about horror movies is that there is so many rules in them, and so there's a little bit of, like, yeah, I would survive this movie because I would have known not to, like, break the un- sort of unwritten rules of what this this movie has. Like, I wouldn't have gone off into that basement or I wouldn't have wandered off in the woods. Yeah, I, I don't know. And that's why I find things that are scary where, like, in you know, in the case of Sisters, where it's like, we could all go down a rabbit hole <laughs> researching things online. But I don't know. I'm, I'm curious if you think that, related to the, like, simulation side of it, is there, do you think that works for, for the audience members? Is like, yes, we can feel scared on these characters' behalf, but also secretly know I'm not going to be that dumb if it ever happened to me? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think, though, with the Sisters, I, I think that when people start, kind of digging into the show and finding out that so many of these things are are inspired by reality. I, I do think there's something, and, and the fact that the sisters deals with family history and identity, there, there is something scary about it because I don't think that we can escape those things. I think if you're a human on earth, you're, you're grappling with the same things that the characters are in the show. And so 
there there is something very frightening about uh, a relatable circumstance. Terrifying. Thanks so much for your time here, Brett. It was great having you. We love the sisters. Uh, can't wait to see what you're up to next. Yeah, this was fun. And that was Brett Nietzschean, the creator and writer of the Undertow season you've been listening to, The Sisters. Sad to say, we will be leaving the gritty streets of Philadelphia next time, but there are more dark things waiting for you in the Undertow. Catch you next time. Undertow is a production of Realm, hosted by Fred Greenhalge, produced by Nicole Kreuter, associate produced by Devin Shepard, executive produced by Fred Greenhalge and Molly Barton, original theme by Hubert Campbell. Find more shows like Undertow by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. Realm is your portal to another world. Listen away. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. 